Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. We have arrived at chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, which happens to begin the second section of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth where we find him providing answers really to six specific questions that he had been asked in a previous letter. We don't know anything about that letter, long lost, but we do know that they have written him a letter previous to this one, of course, and he is now answering and and replying to those questions. The first question, or before I even say that, uh, chapter 7 is, deals with marriage, but in this letter, you know, we've, we have been in six chapters, and we kind of know what that's been talking about, right, for those six chapters and dealing with some issues that were going on in Corinth. Chapter 7 deals with marriage. Chapters 8 through 10 deal with Christian liberty. Chapter 11 with church conduct. Chapters 12 through 14, Paul talks about and instructs on spiritual gifts. Chapter 15, with the resurrection of the dead. And then chapter 16, he talks about giving and offerings. So the first question that Paul dealt with in this first part of chapter 7 concerned marriage and intimacy in marriage. Why? Well, due to the false teaching that was existed, that existed in Corinth, we looked at it somewhat last week, that promoted that anything physical was inerrantly evil And whatever one did with one's body um, became either evil or immaterial. We saw this last week. Remember, they they had bought into this false idea that the soul and the spirit could be separated. And so what the body did didn't matter spiritually, had no consequence. And we know that that is not true. One group said, um, since purity in the material realm is impossible, we can do whatever we want with our bodies, as we saw. The other group, and then another group went to a whole other extreme as they would beat and abuse their bodies in an attempt to rid themselves of the evil tendency that was within. So it isn't any wonder then that because of the cultural confusion, the church had some questions for Paul concerning Christian marriage. In chapter 7, Paul deals with marriage, and actually he guys it broke down into three different categories. Category one is Christians married to Christians. Category two, Christians married to unbelievers. And then category three, unmarried Christians. And today we're going to focus on that first category, Christians married to Christians. We'll be looking at that very first one. Countless dangers. I think we don't have to uh, be convinced of this today. Countless dangers threaten both the sacredness and the survival of marriage. Would you agree with that in our day? From same-sex unions to cohabitating, from domestic abuse to no-fault divorce, from runaway mothers to deadbeat dads, marriage is under attack, caught in the crossfire of these modern-day issues. And even though there is no shortage of groups and forces who are out to undermine the marriage relationship, 
they don't come close to the number one enemy of marriage in both the ancient world and in ours today. Now we know that there is one person, the enemy, Satan, who influences behind it all. But what I'm referring to here, number one enemy is selfishness. Enemy number one. I like what one writer, how he referred to it. He called this selfishness that exists, this number one enemy, he calls it the unholy trinity. Me, myself, and I. Sadly, this unholy trinity doesn't leave very much room for him or her. No more room does it leave for the true holy trinity that represents what? Unselfishness, sacrifice, love, humility. And in our, it's all about me, ego-driven culture, people have a difficult time grasping, much less valuing or modeling biblical principles regarding marriage. Yet our timeless scriptures often um, address marriage matters from the beginning to the end often address this, providing timeless truth and wisdom applicable to marriage issues in every generation. Not to see the word of God is timeless, right? So it's, it has not been antiquated. It is not outdated. It is just as valuable, just as needed, just as powerful today as it has ever been. Amen. If there ever was a time when the body of Christ needs to invite and allow the light of God's word to come and pierce the confusion and the darkness that surrounds us and then therefore lead us into the safe shelter of that God's holiness and word provides, it is now. Amen. And so with that in mind and that being said, let's, let's look at what Paul has to say in this seventh chapter beginning at verse 1. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Paul is dealing with here as we see the call to marriage or not as we're going to see. Now first of all we need to understand that Paul at this point here in chapter 7 is not admonishing men to avoid sexual relations outside of marriage because he's already dealt with that. That is not what he's dealing with here. He's already taken care of that. He's already spoke against that and, and shown how that is not you know what is wanted in a Christian life. But rather, Paul focuses on whether it is preferable for a man to get married or to remain single. He's going to explain this. Remember, this is Corinth, sex-saturated Corinth, okay? So Paul isn't saying stay away from intimacy altogether. He is saying stay away from the immorality part of it. 
It's clear that Paul is responding to a question that's been brought up by, the, by the, some of them in Corinth who had gone to the opposite extreme of those who had justified prostitution. Temple of Aphrodite, right, is there in Corinth. They were claiming, those who had gone to the extreme were claiming that it was good for a person not to marry, therefore promoting celibacy and perhaps even suggesting that that was more spiritual than marriage. Paul replied that, hey, it's good for a man or a woman to have the gift of celibacy, but the celibate state is not better than marriage, not more spiritual than marriage, nor is it the best situation for everybody. In light of Paul's love for the Old Testament, Scriptures that advocate marriage and children as blessings from God, it seems pretty unlikely that he would have suggested celibacy for everybody. You know, blanket statement. In fact, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I commented on this last night. There was a whole lot more men there last night. Not a one of them said amen to that. <laughs> no one here today did either. Okay, whatever. It is not good for a man to be alone. He knew that God himself ordained marriage for the benefit of humanity. Like Jesus before him, Paul saw celibacy as not so much the norm, but nevertheless a choice and condition that one could choose. Paul understood that not everybody had been called to a life of singleness, even though single men and women may have more time to devote themselves to undistracted ministry. They also must contend Paul understands and knows with the temptations that lure them away from purity. So, if the temptations towards sexual immorality are too great for a person to lead a pure single life, Paul is saying then that person ought to get married. It's kind of like he's saying, if you can't handle the heat, and get into the shade of marriage. <laughs> and one knows what they can or cannot handle. Please note, though, I want you to understand this, that in this counsel that Paul is giving, he isn't conveying a low opinion of marriage. Not at all. Okay? As, as if it was the last alternative after every other attempt at controlling sexual desire has failed. He isn't saying... If you're struggling, just run out and get somebody. <laughs> get married. That's not what he is saying. So he says, you know, so that you don't burn in your passions and lusts. Now, I was interested, as you guys know, I often will do check up words and see what that Greek word was in the original when you're doing New Testament Hebrew in the old. And it was interesting that this word passions that Paul chooses to use in the original is the word that we get our word pyro from. One of the descriptions given to this Greek word here that translates as passions was 
setting something on fire, setting combustible things on fire. And I thought that was interesting. Was Paul saying, hey, if you are finding yourself highly combustible, <laughs> then do something about that. You know, then, then the single life is not for you. It's kind of what he's saying. Paul clearly asserted that some Christians are called to a life of singleness, just as some are called to marriage. In essence, Paul was saying, if you are single, that is high and an honorable calling. But it is no good trying to live the single life if you are spending every waking hour battling against your uncontrollable desires. Instead, it is better to be married. And since, as we saw in verse 2, since it says sexual immorality was occurring, and by Paul saying that in the language, is suggesting not just a little bit. It was out of control in Corinth. And so that's what he's responding. Look at verse 3 now with me. He says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now, while some within the church justified incest and visiting prostitutes, as we saw in chapter 5, others evidently were advocating abstinence, even, if you can believe, within marriage. In Paul's mind, there was a connection between the two problems. To avoid the sexually immoral use of prostitutes, Paul instead insisted that married couples should fulfill each other's needs. In other words, abstinence not required for the married. Paul's admonition, I think, flies in the face of the what's-in-it-for-me mentality and attitude and instead transforms it into a how-can-I-serve-you outlook and attitude instead. I used to years ago, I haven't used this term for a long time now, but I used to years ago when doing a wedding ceremony, you know, following the premarital counseling that we would require, Toward the somewhere in the end, toward the end of that wedding ceremony, I would make this statement. Speaking to both people, don't concern yourself with getting, getting the world's greatest spouse. Concern yourself with being the world's greatest spouse. It's not about what's in it for me and what can I get from this. That needs to be transformed and changed. And that is what Paul is saying and encouraging the people there. Marriage protects against the temptations of immorality only when it is functioning properly, as it should. For this reason, Paul spoke explicitly about the marital responsibility. Paul is saying that husbands and wives must faithfully Render to each other what they had promised in their marriage covenants. Paul says that husbands and wives have authority over each other's bodies. 
when you stop and think about it, what an amazing image of mutual submission and accountability. Amen? God's idea. Imagine what a marriage would look like if each person, if each spouse was always looking out for the interests of the other all of the time. Can we imagine? However, let's make sure we also understand that the spirit of what Paul is writing does not allow for any type of abuse or taking advantage of from either husband or wife. It is being sensitive, sympathetic, and not demanding. Verse 5. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. The intimate act of marriage must be mutually agreeable, and Paul lets us know that there can certainly be times where, there a, where a timeout can be taken. He no doubt has in mind something along the lines of fasting and prayer, in which certain physical needs are denied for a set period of time in order to focus more fully on consecration or a special undistracted time of seeking God. Verse 6, some people read that and get confused and misunderstand and think that Paul is saying, hey, what I'm saying here is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. That is not what he is saying. Okay? I want you to imagine with me now, because there's already a problem going on in Corinth, had he not made the statement he makes in verse 6, you could see how some would have taken that, misunderstood that, abused that, and probably used it to say, see, Paul even agrees with this. Abstain from, from being intimate even if you're married, and he is not saying that. And besides, what we need to understand as well here in chapter 7 as he deals with stuff when, he, when, he, when Jesus, when, there, when these questions, that if it was a topic that Jesus taught on, Paul will refer to it and let us know. If it was a topic that Jesus did not teach on, he lets us know that as well. But what you and I need to know is even though he is now counseling with something that Jesus didn't previously teach on, when he puts that pen to paper, he is just as inspired and just as much being led by the Holy Spirit and God as before. Amen? So we need to understand that. Next, Paul returns to the situation of whether singleness or marriage is preferable for any given individual as he talks about the gift and blessing of both singleness and marriage. Look at verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And there he 
He reemphasizes that. Paul admits that for the sake of the gospel, he would prefer that all people were single like him. Paraphrasing, paraphrasing what his thought is here is as if Paul were saying, if it was left to me, I would call together a band of women and men who forsook the married life, committed themselves to single-minded devotion to the work of the gospel, and lived in celibate self-control for the rest of their lives. If it were up to me. <laughs> but he knows differently. Well, Paul modeled that lifestyle himself. He realized that not all men and women were like him. Not all have the same gift from God. Some are gifted with being single, others gifted with being married. For those who have, however, found themselves in an unmarried state, Paul offers some counsel in verse 8. For the unmarried condition, Paul uses a Greek word. It's the word agamos. Agamos, the word can refer to those who have never been married but we see that very same word being used elsewhere here in chapter 7, like verse 11 and also verse 34, where it refers to those who were formerly married, but are no longer married. So Paul's advice in these few verses applies to both the never married and the formerly married. Anybody not in a permanent relationship. Hence, the use of the word widows. Paul encourages those in this situation of singleness to remain single, as Paul had chosen to do. So why does Paul counsel this way? It's very simple. You think maybe he may have been maybe a little bit concerned about the spreading of the gospel message? I think so. This was like huge. <laughs> For Paul, like it's super, super important to him. The spreading and advancing of the kingdom of God, the speaking and the sharing and the living the gospel message, ministry, sharing Jesus, living Jesus was of utmost importance to him. And so it is no surprise then that Paul would come along and say, if at all possible, live like how I've been living. The single life isn't that bad when you can take all of that time that you have undistracted and, and, and turn that into devotion and serving and living for Jesus Christ. Though the continued single life would be preferable as far as he is concerned for the sake of a life undistracted, devotion to and service for the Lord, Paul realizes that not all unmarried people have the gift of being single. He knows not everyone can do what he is doing. So for those singles who would be distracted from a life of service and ministry, Paul says, once again, it's better to marry. Now the question comes up, was, was Paul a married man? He says that he's not here. He said it twice, verse 7 and verse 8. We don't know for sure. 
Some scholars believe that he probably was in his early years, and they have some good support for that because in order to be a rabbi or a member of the Sanhedrin, which Acts pretty much lets us know that he was, they had a rule. You had to be a married man to belong to the Sanhedrin and to be an ordained rabbi. So that would indicate that very likely then that in his earlier years, Paul was indeed married. So what about Mrs. Apostle Paul then? Where is she? Because there is nothing in Scripture about her, not even in, in uh, other historical records. And so, again, we really do not know. Some suggest that she probably died. Others, however, believe that his wife left him when he became a follower of Jesus Christ. Which is possible. Which would make a lot of sense when you read what he's been writing as well. Well, the next thing Paul deals with is what the Corinthians had no doubt asked. What about divorce between believers? Verse 10. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. See, now he's, he's referring to a teaching that Jesus did do. Not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Paul turns from the unmarried to the married, offering vital advice concerning divorce and remarriage. Whereas the previous instructions addressed the homes of the unmarried, the divorced, the widows, Paul next applies his apostolic wisdom, his being led by the Spirit of God to the fragile and sometimes fractured homes of the unhappily married. Up front, Paul states what Jesus had said about marriage, that the wife should not leave her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul lets us know in verse 10 that he is referring to the Lord's teaching on this matter. And Jesus taught on this. You can go and read it for yourself. Matthew 5, verse 32, Matthew 19, verses 8 and 9, and again in Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Now, by referring to Jesus' teaching, Paul affirms the basic biblical principle of marriage, okay? Not his idea, God's basic biblical principle coming and handed down from us from on high, from our God, our creator, the one who has given the gift of marriage. And what is that basic biblical principle? It is to be permanent, permanency. Married couples are to stay with each other, bond together, become one flesh, building a strong home upon the solid and sure foundation of a stable marriage centered on Jesus Christ. Christian couples should not give in to the destruction of divorce, but should do everything in their power to nurture 
and build their marriage on the ideal of till death do us part. Realizing, realizing that there is no perfect marriage. Just imperfect people trusting in a perfect God to see them through. Without denying the seriousness of the ideal that marriage should be a lifelong commitment, Paul also acknowledges the reality of our sin-infested world. Even the healthiest of marriages can be damaged by the effects of sin, making the idea of lifelong a challenging task. Some marriages become so hurt and damaged that the commitment is not always upheld, as we know. And Paul doesn't shy away from, his, from this reality. Instead, he faces it head on, giving practical guidelines for handling painful and dysfunctional marriages God's way. And that's so key, folks, God's way. For Christians whose marital bonds have been damaged by the harsh impact of sin or selfishness, Paul counsels that the divorced couple either remain unmarried or be reconciled with one another. Now, Paul doesn't indicate the cause of the separation here, whatever might have been going on in Corinth and even to our modern day, but the language does seem to suggest mild reasons for leaving like common marital conflicts rather than serious matters such as unrepentant adultery, abuse, things of that nature. Jesus himself, as most of you are aware, allowed for Christians to marry people other than their former partners when their divorce was caused by sexual immorality, adultery. The terms separate and divorce were not distinguished in Paul's day like they are now. You see, in Paul's day, they were one and the same. Separated, separated meant divorced in Corinth. Jesus made adultery legitimate grounds for divorce, Matthew 19. And Paul contended, this is interesting, he contends that desertion was also grounds for divorce. And we will see that next, our next time together in verse 15, because that's where he says that. In fact, look at that with me real quick as we jump ahead real quick, and then we'll come back. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. Now, did you notice there, he's not talking about believer and believer, unbeliever leaving a believer. Let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. And so for Paul, he kind of like sees abandonment and desertion along the same lines as adultery. With these exemptions in mind, Paul stated plainly that believers, if at all possible, not practice divorce. Work it out. Be reconciled. And again, we are talking about believer and believer. Right? 
because there should, is supposed to be a greater power there, a greater resource when we don't make it about us and we make it about him is where Paul is coming from. Now, I believe we can conclude this section of chapter 7 considering what Paul has said with these thoughts. If you find yourself single, good for you. God bless you. Use it to display what a dedicated, undistracted life looks like for the glory and kingdom of God and serve him with all that is within you. And if you find yourself married, good for you. God bless you. Use it to display what love, commitment, and enduring staying power looks like for the glory and kingdom of God and serve God as much as you possibly can. Either way, would you agree with me? It is all about Jesus. And putting him, as we like to say around here, on display. Being a reflection of him. Advancing his kingdom. And keeping in mind what we saw last week at the end of chapter 6. You are not your own. We've been bought with a price. Amen. May we live our lives with that thought in the center of our hearts, souls and spirits. It's all about Jesus with however he has gifted you in this life. It's a gift. See it as that. Either way, amen? Father, we thank you so much for your grace, for your faithfulness, and for the word of God the timeless truth that we have that you have given us. And I pray, Lord, that we would understand that that is exactly what the Word of God is, timeless truth, timeless wisdom, not antiquated, not out of date, just as powerful for living today as it has ever been. And if ever there was a time where we need to turn to God's word and allow it to and absorb it in our lives and, and read it, study it, believe it, and then live it, now is the time. Especially as it comes to the topic that we've talked about today. For we all agree that it is under attack. Marriage is under attack the single life being lived to the glory of God under attack. But Lord, you are greater than our enemy. And when we can put our trust in you, good things happen. You provide the strength. You provide the wherewithal where we can stand for you. Undaunted, unconquered by this world, but living lives more than conquerors in Jesus Christ, victorious over it all. 
thank you, Lord, that this is what you make available to us. Because when it's all said and done, it will come down to how did we represent you, God, to this world? Were we doing it our way or we, did we do it your way? We thank you, Lord. Speak to our hearts. May we listen. May we obey. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up, lift up my heart.